Good evening, everybody. This is Howie Hawkins. Angela Walker is working late, 14-hour days. She's not going to be able to make it with us today. Uh, she hopes we'll be here next week. Construction just got started, and that dump truck she's driving, they're working her real hard. So what I want to talk about today is uh, sort of extending upon a discussion last week on Biden's climate plan because I talked about its impact on the United States. It should have, in any effective climate plan, should have an international approach. And there's nothing in Biden's infrastructure plan, obviously, in which the climate plan is embedded that says anything about the international issues related to dealing with the climate crisis and the broader environmental crisis. So what I want to start with today is uh, Papua New Guinea. I put out a appeal today for the Greens Party of Papua New Guinea, who are really struggling against uh, a colonial extractive economy that has impoverished Papua New Guinea. It's destroyed one third of their rainforests. Most of those uh, forests have become palm oil plantations. It's an ecological disaster. It's also a human and economic disaster because what we call ecological unequal exchange is extremely manifest in this relationship between Papua New Guinea and the world economy because it's foreign global corporations that are going into Papua New Guinea, buying off local politicians and clear-cutting their rainforests. And on the other side of the equation is the United States is the richest country in the world. We're the number one importer of tropical products like wood from the rainforest and palm oil. And what we're really doing when we import those products is we're, we're importing the destruction of biodiversity. And at the other equation, the other side of the equation, Papua New Guinea is the third largest exporter of these tropical products, or you could say of the world's biodiversity. And of course, that biodiversity affects all of us because it affects the ecological and uh, biogeochemical cycles of the planet, the ecology, and in the end, the food we rely on. And what it's done for the people of Papua New Guinea is destroyed their means to life in the rainforest and uh, expropriated their land. And what they call it, it's like the enclosures at the beginning of capitalism in England, where you know the commons were enclosed and you know the yeoman farmers and peasantry could no longer get access to wood and game and basically were forced off the land and into the factories over time. Same process going on in another uh, way in Papua New Guinea. So we owe them an ecological debt because of this destruction of biodiversity. And we're in the middle of the uh, sixth great mass extinction in Earth's history. And much of the biodiversity in the world is in these rainforests. In fact, Papua New Guinea is one of the most diverse uh, regions in terms of biodiversity, as well as linguistic and cultural diversity. And we're destroying all of that. So the ecological debt we owe is we need to reforest that rainforest, restore those habitats, and then pay that country, which is dependent on its trade for uh, money and, and foreign exchange uh, compensate for the loss of trade they would get if we stopped destroying the rainforest and exporting it and start rebuilding it. So you can call that reparations, but I think we should think of it as an investment for us, along with all of humanity, in the habitability of the planet. And so in Papua New Guinea, Guinea the Greens Party, as they call it, we say Green Party, they say Greens Party, is the only party there that is resisting this ecological destruction. The dominant parties are bought off by these foreign corporations. The politicians are in it for personal advancement, no political principles, and they're getting paid. 
So the Greens Party is challenging that. And in that environment where you have a history of political violence based on tribes and clans, it's uh, putting your life on the line to put yourself forward. But the Greens are doing that. Uh, they're fighting that exploitation. And to summarize their platform, uh, one of their principles, like we have in our 10 key values, is respect for diversity. And they're speaking of the ethnic diversity of Papua New Guinea with all those different ethnic groups and languages, diversity and equality for women, and diversity and equality for LGBTQ people, which they're the only party advocating for that. They call for a grassroots democracy, starting with community control of local affairs and the local land. So the land isn't taken from them for clear cutting and, and pine oil or palm oil plantations. And they also have a national political reform agenda, which is like ours. They want proportional representation. They want public funding, funding of election campaigns. And what private money would be spent on elections has to be fully disclosed. And then they envision an ecological economy that is based on the sustainable use of the rainforest, ecological agriculture that's regenerative and sustainable, and overall an equitable distribution of income and wealth. And because of that platform, one of the small party members of parliament recently joined the Green Party. So they now have their first member of parliament. And they're getting ready to run in 2022, uh, they, they think they can run 30 candidates for the 111 seats. They have a commitment to having 75% of those seats be filled by women, which reflects their commitment, unlike any of the other parties in Papua New Guinea, to women's equality. Um, and now the parliament with their new member is opening its next session on April 20th. So I put out this appeal today. You can, if you didn't get it through our uh, emails, and if you're not on the list, go to howiehawkins.us and sign up. Uh, but you can read the appeal or the updates on the website, howiehawkins.us. I just outlined it. <clears throat> and there you can also find how to send them some money. They're looking for $25,000, which is not that much in this country, but it's a lot in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and they need that to open up an office, which they are required to do to be able to run in these parliamentary elections. And they need a vehicle because in Port Moresby, I mean, their party general secretary lives in a squatter settlement that's very dangerous. And because of the political violence, this man is in the same ethnic group as the leaders of the two dominant parties. And uh, that's, you know, that's putting your life on the line to challenge those people. So the vehicles needed just to protect them as they move around Port Moresby to the government where the parliament and, and to their, when their candidates come in uh, to work with the party on their campaign. So uh, it's not a big budget, but it's, it's something we could all contribute a little bit to. And if you go to that update on howiehawkins.us, it'll explain how do you can transfer money uh, to help them in their efforts. So, that's just one country around the world. And we're in a situation of massive economic imperialism where there's not just, well, we call it the ecological debt. It's also called the climate debt. You've probably heard this discussion around when they have these global climate uh, conferences and people in the global South and social justice advocates are saying, rich countries like the United States, uh, owe a climate debt because cumulatively we have generated 25% of the carbon dioxide in the industrial era, far more than any other country. And that carbon dioxide is disproportionately affecting uh, people in, in the tropics and the uh, poor countries in the global south. And so, as I said, we should see this as uh, an investment in the habitability of the planet that is in all of our interests. So when we speak of economic imperialism, you know, there's a concept of unequal exchange. Global corporations have all this bargaining power that enables them to super exploit labor, uh, to get access to resources on cheap terms, uh, 
you know, excluding indigenous people, um, pushing them off the land uh, with the help of local governments that, you know, we still have, frankly, we still have Indian wars going out throughout Latin America. It's happening in Papua New Guinea. Uh, you may have heard that the Inuit-led party, and I'm not going to say the word uh, because I can't, it's initials are IA, just won uh, the Greenland elections. And the issue was whether a big mine would go forward. And the indigenous people and the eco-socialists of Greenland said no. They are now the major party. They will form the next government in Greenland. Uh, but that's indigenous people fighting back. So what's happened in Papua New Guinea is happening all over the world. And so we have unequal exchange, and then we have this ecological unequal exchange, which basically the, the rich countries in the north are destroying the biodiversity of the global south to get products that in the end we're going to run out of because we've destroyed uh, the rainforests. And of course, you destroy the rainforest. The Amazon is called the lungs of the world. Uh, they produce a lot of oxygen. They uh, draw a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. We got to rebuild these forests to draw down carbon out of the atmosphere because the climate crisis now is not just a matter of stopping emissions because if 350 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere that James Hansen and a group of scientists said is probably the safety zone and Bill McKibben and 350.org have popularized, if that's the safety zone, we hit a record 421 parts per million on April 3rd. We're way past it. And at that level of carbon, uh, we're looking at the same climate as the middle of the Pliocene 3.3 million years ago when temperature was 11 degrees Fahrenheit higher and oceans were 100 feet higher. And that's what we're locked into. Even if we stop emissions now, we got to draw that carbon out. And so that's where reforesting uh, the world is so important. And that's, uh, you know, what we call a global Green New Deal. And that's really the alternative to the imperialism we have now, because these global corporations enlist their home-based countries to enable them to super exploit these countries in the global south, especially the United States. I mean, we have by far the biggest military we have a global military empire of over 800 bases. Right now, we are propping up a dictator in Haiti, trying to install one in Venezuela. We're still engaged all over the Middle East. We've pivoted to uh, Asia, which means China, and we're engaged in provocative military exercises, as are the Chinese, which is very dangerous. We're also doing that with Russia. And what does that do for our peace and security? So the alternative, you know, that we campaigned on is a global Green New Deal. And in our Eco-Socialist Green New Deal budget, we had $3 trillion for this. $1 trillion was directly for bringing uh, clean production systems, the machinery of clean production. For example, uh, for steel, electric arc furnaces instead of coke ovens, bringing these technologies to the global south. And that would have created a million uh, manufacturing jobs. And then we also had, this is, these are 10-year budgets, uh, two trillion for a new civilian conservation corps that would employ four million people. And that wasn't just for the United States, that's for reforestation all over the world. So, you know, our argument is if we send aid instead of arms, we will make friends instead of enemies. And that will create more peace and security for us than this global military empire where we're trying to basically create a fortress America where we keep all the wealth and keep the other people out, which we're going to have, you know, climate refugees is a huge issue. Hundreds of millions projected in the next couple of decades as oceans rise, droughts happen, uh, you know, and then there's conflict around resources that become scarce. So I would, I would ask people to look at that appeal for the Greens Party of Papua New Guinea, send them some money so they can uh, compete in the parliamentary elections next year. 
And think about how when we talk about climate action, it can't just be cleaning up the United States because this is a global problem. The United States can set a good example and the economic boom it will create should encourage other countries to do likewise. But uh, so anyway, that's that was what was on my mind today. And uh, I only took 10 minutes or 15 minutes instead of 40 like last week. So there, there's plenty of time for questions and answers. And I'd be happy to see what people are saying. So Miss Leo, how are you doing? Thank you. I just find it very off trying to run a democracy on a land that isn't ours. I mean that at all parties that aren't Native America plus everyone, and not just the main colonizers' parties. Well, you know, we need a party that uh, defends indigenous people and their treaty rights in this country and the land that uh, they lived on that has, you know, been spoiled. And I think, you know, we're getting examples of that. Many Latin American countries have a eco-socialist left that's grounded in indigenous people. I just mentioned what they did up in Greenland. And I think those are models for us in the United States. Saul Oyas, and I apologize for mispronunciations of names. We have to work with the fellow third parties on the left where possible to really make scaled changes we keep talking about. Also, any reasonable person on the right or independent knows, I guess knows that we need to make scaled, oh, that we've all been suffering unnecessarily on things. We could literally change a policy and we could move on to the next thing, bigger and better concerns instead. Um, well, as far as third parties working together, yeah, uh, of course. I will say the Greens in this country are the only nationally organized party that's been on battle lines across the country and is continuing to do so. But there are always other parties bubbling up. I was just on a call about ranked choice voting with the Movement for a People's Party people in New York. And one of the things the guy chairing the meeting for them said, and a lot of them said they voted for me for president and for governor here in New York, we got to work together. And I said, yes, we do. And that was one of the themes of our campaign. <clears throat> now, as far as people on the right, I think we need to distinguish between traditional conservatives, you know, who temperamentally are like, uh, if it's working, don't mess with it. Whereas progressives are like, we can do better than that. Let's, let's try. And you sort of need those kind of conservatives around so you aren't doing, you know, a kind of a check on, on hubris. But the other kind of right we have now is this uh, right based on resentment, on racism, on nativism, on we rule or nothing happens, rule or ruin. It's authoritarian. It wants an autocracy. That's what the Republicans have become. And that I don't think we have any common ground on. They don't want to govern. They're anti-government. Uh, they just, they just want to keep their money, not put any of it toward the common wheel, even though it's common sense that that road that they use to get to wherever they got to uh, comes out of taxes. So uh, I don't know what we do with those folks. Uh, a lot of them are evangelicals who are uh, basically seeing themselves as the chosen people and waiting for the end times. Uh, they're not reasonable. And so I think there are people on the right, you know, small C conservatives that yes, when we run into a common problem, we'll come up with a common solution. I've worked with those kind of conservatives for Medicare for all, because they know they're getting ripped off by private insurance. I've worked with them on public power because they know they're getting ripped off by what we call national greed, national grid. Um, and even, you know, they're conservatives because they're social conservatives on issues like abortion. We just agree not to talk about that. And we work on Medicare for all and public power. So, yeah, I think on issues, we can build all kinds of coalitions. And at least the progressive parties do need to find a way to work together. Those that really do want to. There are sectarian parties out there 
they're not really about building a broad mass party. They're about building their little cadre organization. And, uh, you know, they're just not going to be part of a mass party. So we have to understand that as well. <clears throat> Eric Gray, how does the Eagle Socialist Green New Deal look like on a local level? Well, I think one thing is public power, uh, getting the municipality or a public bank or a state law that forces the utilities to finance retrofitting all our buildings with heat pumps so we can get off fossil fuels, natural gas, home heating oil and propane. You can fight for policies like that. Um, getting the LED lights in your, in your you know, street lights in the city. Uh, there are a million pieces of the Green New Deal that you can fight for at the local level. I think we can also come up with a local Green New Deal and have the city come up with a plan for 100% clean energy on the fastest timeline possible. Most municipalities, probably all of them, cannot finance that on their own because statutorily they have to have balanced budgets and the states do as well. So they can't spend money like the federal government can before they raise the taxes for it. But what you can do is have a Green New Deal and do what you can finance locally and then take it to the federal government and say and demand, we need funding to complete our local Green New Deal and make that an issue your representative in Congress has to deal with, your senators have to deal with. And in fighting for that kind of Green New Deal, you can educate people locally about what it practically means. Because, of course, the Republican right and many of the Democrats say we don't want a Green New Deal like Joe Biden. Uh, it's socialism or it'll cost jobs or all this nonsense. The fact is these uh, investments in clean energy create far more jobs than the energy investments we have in fossil and nuclear fuels that we're dependent on now. So uh, in fighting for a local Green New Deal, you can bring out uh, these uh, perspectives on the federal Green New Deal that we, that we need and the global Green New Deal that we need. Luker Denouncer, do you and the Green Party support the Shama Solidarity Campaign? Yes, that refers to Shama Sawant, where the right wing in Seattle, backed by the, the billionaires in the tech industry, in the real estate industry, are trying to get Shama Sawant recalled. She's a socialist, she's a member of the Socialist Alliance Party. She's been in office, she's won, I guess, two elections. Uh, she ran a good state assembly election before that, didn't win. And, you know, she is the progressive leader in the Seattle City Council. And the power structure wants her out. So, you know, I would Google Sharma Sawan and uh, find her solidarity campaign and, and give her some money and speak out in her support. Uh, if you're in the Northwest, you know, you're closer, you can go to the, they have many uh, public events. Uh, they will have a campaign around the recall. And uh, it's important for all of us who believe in independent politics, and socialist democracy to defend Shama Sama. Z Kramer, what do you think about Biden withdrawing troops from Afghanistan? Uh, that reminds me of what Gandhi reportedly said about Western civilization. It would be a good idea. I'll, I won't believe it till I see it. Um, you know, the previous agreement was May 1st and Biden saying we can't do it then. Uh, today, they said we'll be out by 9-11, which is the 20th anniversary of the current Afghanistan war, which is an artificial deadline because we got into Afghanistan in 1978 or 79 under the Carter administration when we started supporting uh, Islamist fundamentalists against the uh, government of Afghanistan at the time. So it's been more like a 40-year war. Um, and you get the formal troops out, but what about contractors? Because part of the problem with our military industrial complex is they're privatizing that too. And giving out a lot of the work to uh, 
mercenary corporations like Eric Prince runs. I don't know what the latest name for his company is. Goes back to Blackwater. Uh, the the contracts for housing and food and all that vending uh, used to be done in house inside the military at less cost and probably better quality than it is now when they outsource it. So we withdraw 2,500 formal members of the U.S. Armed Forces, but are we still going to be paying for private contractors to continue to war? Are the other NATO powers going to get out? So I want to see Biden withdraw completely, and then I'll believe it. Um, and the reason is U.S. military involvement over the last 40 years has just turned Afghanistan into a disaster. Constant war. There are two generations of young people that have grown up under war there. And as uh, Matthew Ho, who was a Marine officer in Afghanistan, uh, said, you know, the politics of Afghanistan, he called it valleyism. They have very local control. It's clan and tribe based. And each valley has its own political structure. And the U.S. had no clue what they were dealing with. There's a, a guy named Anand Gopal who wrote a book, and I forget the name of it, but he embedded himself not with the U.S. military, but with the Taliban. And that book has uh, all these stories about how the Afghans were playing the U.S. people who were, you know, military that was trying to hand out money to get people on their side to fight the Taliban. And they were getting played. The U.S. was getting played because they had no idea who they were dealing with. And every, you know, little valley has its own local leadership and uh, political structure. And the Afghans for thousands of years have, you know, been able to live with each other relatively peacefully. And, of course, it's known for centuries as the place where empires go to die. You know, that was certainly true of the Western empires. The Mongols, you know, maybe almost a thousand years ago now or 800 years ago, actually did take control, but they, they got assimilated into the local population as the Mongol Empire fell apart. But, um, you know, Afghanistan can take care of itself. And people say, well, the Taliban are Islamic fundamentalists. They treat women bad. They don't allow for political freedom. Yeah, well, the same is true of the other side. Uh, the government, very corrupt, uh, involved in the poppy production and, and heroin uh, refining. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, we don't have to pick the lesser evil. You know, we can withdraw and then provide aid uh, to those places. And there are parts of Afghanistan that are relatively peaceful where girls do go to school, uh, where they're trying to develop economically and cooperatively, where, you know, we could provide aid. You know, I think the carrot aid is a lot more effective than the stick of arms. And so uh, first we got to get the military out of there. So I don't know if Biden's going to do it, really. You know, they they missed, They said they're going to miss May 1st. 9-11 is a nice symbolic date. I will believe it when I see it. And then I will examine it to see if it's not just a cover for, you know, private mercenaries and other NATO powers remaining there propping up a corrupt government. Gary Brown, Howie Hawkins, how do we keep authoritarianism out of the Green Party the way it affected the leadership of the People's Party? By the way, I support and follow the petitioners. Um, the petitioners, I assume, is ballot access petitioners, but if not, uh, please tell me what you're referring to. Uh, the grassroots has to keep authoritarianism out of the Green Party. Uh, and I'm not going to comment on the leadership of the People's Party. People can see that for themselves. I would say the Green Party is uh, not immune to uh, people abusing positions of leadership. But it's always up to the people uh, that elect these people to leadership. Or if they're not elected, allow them to be in leadership without being elected on a periodic basis. So uh, the basic way to keep authoritarianism out is to practice democracy from the bottom up.
So Saul OAS. I think there is one Green Party mayor currently who can probably answer that. I forgot his name. Uh, answer the question about authoritarianism. There's more than one Green Party mayor. Uh, Peter Schwartzman just got elected mayor of uh, Galesville or Galesville, Illinois, in a spring election. I think it was last week in November. Um, Emmanuel Estrada got elected to mayor of Baldwin Park in California. Um, and I don't have all of them in my head, but uh, we have more than one green mayor and we've had many over the years. So there are currently over 100 greens in office around the country. And more people should know that. You know, Shama Sawan gets a lot of attention. Her group is very good about publicizing her, but she's one member of a little party. We have 100, over 100 in office. So we need to toot our own horn a little more. Z. Kramer asks, what do you think of the Ecuadorian election? Well, it's too bad that banker got elected. Um, this is a case that's complicated for the left. Uh, the Korea government, uh, basically the indigenous left opposed extractive policies of Korea. And uh, he was kind of authoritarian toward them, imprisoned some of the leaders, including this guy Perez, they ran on behalf of the indigenous party and came in third in the uh, first round and told people to stay home because uh, he didn't want the neoliberal policies of the banker or the authoritarianism in his point of view of uh, the socialist or social democratic left represented by uh, his initials are AA. I can't remember the exact name, but uh, he was a successor to Korea. So this is a problem uh, between the, the old left and the new indigenous-based left. And I think you can see good and bad sides, uh, positions on both sides. Um, the anti-extractivism of the indigenous is important to protect the environment. On the other hand, these countries need something to sell to get foreign exchange to develop. So it's a question of Andres Arauz, and I'm, my Spanish name pronunciation is terrible, but it's in the chat. That's the guy that lost. Um, most people expect him to win because between the indigenous party and uh, his party, the left had the majority by far in the, uh, like two to one in the first round. But the indigenous people, stayed home and uh, it enabled the, the banker to squeak in. And that's probably the worst evil. So this is an issue that's come up in Bolivia. Uh, actually, you know, Venezuela, Nicaragua, the, the relationship between these progressive governments and indigenous people in their land and their resources. And it's something that's got to be worked out on the left. So that's, what I think, there's a lot of reports, you know, you can find reports that basically say the indigenous left has been stirred up by the CIA, et cetera. Uh, I always find that kind of, uh, you know, Eurocentric chauvinistic racism as if these people can't think for themselves and have their own issues. Um, on the other hand, you know, some of the positions they take, I think uh, may have been mistaken, but uh, this is something that we should keep our eyes on uh, throughout Latin America, throughout the world, because a lot of the, you know, the, the Greens Party of Papua New Guinea, they are on one hand very modernizing in the sense of equal rights for women and LGBT people and having a, a, a democracy based on principles rather than payoffs to the, to the powerful. Uh, they're fighting for democracy. Uh, on the other hand, they're trying to protect the land and and resources of indigenous people. Uh, and they, if they took power, they would face the question of, well, how do we sustainably use the rainforest when that's our, you know, sales of those products are our main source of foreign exchange and cash to develop. That's why we need a global Green New Deal. So this is something I think, you know, we're studying and uh, listening to all sides. It's become very controversial around the Ecuadorian election. 
And I, I think rather than say one of the lefts was wrong and one of them was right and one of them is corrupt and one of them is irredeemably authoritarian, uh, there's probably a way to work that out. Of course, they have to do that, but we shouldn't add to the difficulty of that by uh, demonizing, you know, one or the other sides on that left debate. Eric Gray asks, what's the best way to get younger people like teenagers engaged in policy substance? I'll tell you, man, I think the teenagers are more engaged than a lot of older heads. Um, I've been so impressed. I've gone on a lot of, of these, you know, online forums invited by Sunrise Groups, high school clubs, uh, climate action networks. And these kids are very informed, more informed about climate issues. You know, the real substance of what the different technologies are, how far we are along in, you know, blowing through our carbon budget to stay below one and a half degrees Celsius rise in temperature than many of the older people. So first I wanna just say the young folks are the hope. Now, the best way to get them engaged in policy substance, I think the same way you get people engaged in anything, <coughs> you make it interesting. Uh, you have peers talk to them about it. Like I said, a lot of these young people are very well informed. And a lot of times they will uh, more easily absorb it if they if it comes from a peer rather than somebody like me, who to them is ancient history. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of ways to approach it. Uh, a lot of this information is online, and that's one of the good things about the uh, electronic age, the Internet age. Um, the other thing I'm telling the young people is once we get out of this COVID lockdown, we got to get out and talk to people, regular people, by knocking on doors having substantive conversations, not preaching at them, but listening, building relationships, building a movement <coughs> that encompasses more than the people we're already working with. And that's about building a mass base. And young people have the energy. I mean, I know we got a big petition we're facing here in New York, and some people that we've counted on over the years are now in their 60s and 70s. And they're saying, I don't know if I can go out there like I used to. But the young people can so, uh, and I think, you know, getting them engaged in policy substance, one of the ways you get engaged <coughs> is by knowing you have to have answers to questions. And you go out on the street or knocking on doors and people ask you questions. And you, you say to yourself, well, I need to know the answers to these things. So that's another way, I think, to get them engaged in the policy substance. Um, of course, some young people are more interested in, you know, the opposite sex or maybe the same sex in sex and uh, how they fit into the world, you know, their self-confidence. I mean, there's all kind of stuff going on when you're young and we have to give that space as well. But, uh, you know, I think probably the best thing is just make it interesting and fun. And. Being part of a group, a collective enterprise, you have you, you get friends and relationships out of that. I think that's part of the appeal of movements. And once you're out there in the movement, you got to have answers to those policy questions when you talk to people or to the media. <coughs> Miss Leo, uh, BIPOC which is black indigenous people of color are still being targeted and murdered by police. Yes, they are. Police out there are hunting POC people of color and killing them and nothing is happening. And Biden keeps saying black lives matter and not showing it through his actions. Yeah. Biden the other night, his first thing when he commented on what's going on in uh, Brooklyn center, where this young man was shot by an officer that, said she was reaching for a taser. Instead, she reached for a gun and shot him dead. Biden's first thing in the protest that resulted and there was, you know, some looting. Uh, some reporters on the scene say that was a different group from the 
protesters. They just took advantage of the circumstances. In any case, Biden's first comment was to say, uh, you know, stop the protests and the violence. Rather than to expect sympathy and solidarity with the victims of police violence. Um, that's not setting the right tone. Not setting the right tone for the people that are the victims. Not setting the right tone for the police who should know that the president is not going to tolerate this kind of violence toward our citizens. Um, yeah, and you say nothing is happening. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Congress, they passed, I think they called it the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which uh, federal government doesn't have much jurisdiction over local policing, but I think one of the things in there is a ban on chokeholds. <coughs> you know, use of force reforms are okay, should be incorporated into police training. But we had a ban on chokeholds in New York City from 1993. And 20 years later, Eric Garner was choked to death, and everybody saw it on that viral video. And, of course, he was not the only one. He just got caught on – his death got caught on video. So – you know, what we've been saying this whole campaign is we need community control of the police so that they answer to the community and not to the power structure that set them up to do what they do, which is to keep black people, low-income people segregated in their communities and out of the upscale communities. That's what they've been doing in one form or another going back to slavery. So when people see say we need to defund the police or abolish the police, uh, what that means is we need to have the police stop doing certain things. Like they should not be answering calls uh, when people are having mental health crises. You need people that are mental health experts to deal with those uh, people in crisis. The homeless need a home, not a vagrancy uh, charge. The addicted need drug treatment, not a prison sentence and so forth. So we should scale back what the police do. And then when they do what we think they're supposed to do, they should do it right. You know, how many crimes, particularly in low-income communities, go unsolved? Because it's not a priority for the police. Um, and oftentimes in low-income communities, you know, the attitude is when we don't want them, they harass us. When we do want them, we can't get them. When there's a real crisis that, you know, would need an armed officer. So that comes back to community control of the police so we can get those officers to do what we expect them to do and not do what they've been doing, which, as your question you know, says, hunting people of color and killing them. Yep, I think that's not uh, overstating the problem. Jean Lowe's Pascalides. Why doesn't Greta Thunberg endorse the U.S. Green Party? Uh, is she old enough to even vote yet? I, I give her a lot of credit for popularizing and uh, inspiring young people to get out there. I do understand she endorsed Biden, and uh, I don't even know if she knew about her campaign. I'm not going to hold that against her. Uh, I'm just glad she's out there speaking like she did to the UN in 20, when was it now, 2019, when she told them, she gave them the math that most of these fools who represent countries probably didn't even know about where we are in the climate budget. And the fact that uh, if we do meet the International Panel on Climate Change budget to stay below one and a half degrees, we only have a two-thirds chance of doing that by staying within that budget. You know, that's like taking a revolver with six chambers and putting two bullets in it and putting it into your head and pulling the trigger. There's a good chance you're not going to make it. And, and that's the best odds. And, and so she's saying, you know, this is an emergency. That's basically what she's been doing. And I, I you know, give her props for that. Uh, she's very young. I don't expect her to be sophisticated politically or a leader of a political movement. She doesn't aspire to that. She sees her role as sounding the alarm. And uh, so I think she's doing a good job. 
So why she didn't endorse us, I don't even know if she knew about us. Um, and I, you know, I think I heard she said, you know, I hope people elect Biden. Um, given what Trump was doing, you know, that's that was the lesser evil, but it wasn't the solution that we were trying to offer. <clears throat> Joanna Munley, do you think Bernie Sanders will run for president again? And if so, is it still worth supporting him? Uh, I don't think Bernie will run again. Uh, you got a Democratic incumbent, so it's going to be Biden or maybe Kamala Harris. I don't think he would primary her. Uh, I just think, you know, he's had his runs. Uh, and if he did run, yeah, if he ran as an independent with the Green Party, it would be worth supporting him. But if he runs as a Democrat, no, because he's channeling progressives into a super capitalist party where the progressives are the minority in terms of power and numbers and really make it look better than it is. And, you know, I went over Biden's climate plan or non-plan last week. Tonight I talked about his, you know, foreign policy and, you know, how that hasn't changed. Uh, this, the Democrats are not the solution to the life or death issues we face. Uh, what I didn't mention earlier was the commitment to $100 billion building new intercontinental ballistic missiles. I mean, come on, we can already blow the world up. And what we should be doing is uh, unilaterally disarming to a credible minimum deterrent and, uh, you know, pulling our troops away and pledging no first use of nuclear weapons and then going to the nuclear powers and saying we're ready to negotiate complete nuclear disarmament as we were supposed to do under the 1970 Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and is now proposed by the Treaty on the Abolition or the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is last time I looked, 55 countries had ratified. Um, over 100, I think it's 122 countries have approved the text of. Um, that's going into effect for the countries that signed it. But none of the nuclear powers, and there are eight or nine of them. I mean, what we would do if the Greens were in power is force these nuclear powers into negotiations. First by setting an example and then going to them with world public opinion behind these treaties saying we want the nukes, we want to get rid of the nukes because they could be the end of all of us. Um, you'll never get that from the Democratic Party. It's not even up for debate. Bernie Sanders didn't raise it. So... Uh, I would support Bernie as a Green if he would raise that issue and in the questions of U.S. foreign and military policy, um, which he wasn't so good on. So anyway, but I don't think Bernie's going to run again. I think he's he's going to wrap it up as a uh, team player in the Democratic caucus in the U.S. Senate and try to get some incremental reforms. <clears throat> and as senators go, he's probably better than all of them, but it's not anywhere what we need. So Z Kramer asks, what do you think about Biden finishing Trump's wall and letting fewer immigrants in than Trump? I think it's a disaster. I think it's terrible. I think it's immoral. I think the Democrats are hypocrites. And I know some of the progressives are pushing Biden on that. But again, they have no power within the Democratic Party. Uh, I've given this example before, but I'll repeat it for those that maybe haven't heard it before. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has wanted to be on the Energy and Commerce Committee since she got into the Congress. And when Elliot Engels was beaten by Jamal Bowman, a seat opened up on that committee and AOC let it be known she wanted that seat. The response of the leadership of the Democratic Party was to get a conservative corporate Democrat, Kathleen Rice from Long Island, to run for that seat too. So when they got to the steering and policy committee of the Democratic Party, their leadership uh, body in the House caucus they voted 46 to 13 to seat Kathleen Rice over AOC. That shows you how little power the progressives have in the Democratic Party. So they are complaining about what Biden's doing with immigration, but Biden is continuing the bipartisan policy of using that border to uh, basically help exploit workers on both sides of the border. The low wages on the southern side are used as a threat against those of us on this side by companies that say, if you don't accept 
uh, low wages and poor benefits, we can just move to Mexico or these other countries in the global south that where the wages are even lower and the benefits and the social and labor protections are even less. Um, and of course, for the people on the other side of the border, trade treaties like NAFTA, basically you had an enclosure of Mexican people off their land. The old Ejido system was destroyed by NAFTA. And that's why we had waves of Mexicans. And now, again, these are indigenous people. A lot of them trying to protect their environments. We had the case of Berta Caceres, or Carrera, forgive my Spanish, uh, the Honduran woman that was defending the land got assassinated by the death squads in Honduras, a government that overthrew the elected reformer uh, Zelaya back in 2009 under the Obama administration, and the U.S. called it constitutional. That guy was grabbed in his pajamas one morning and exported out of the country. And then they, they went to the Congress and, you know, the real thing was he wanted to raise the minimum wage. That's, that's why the elite there didn't want him. So that's what you got in Honduras and, and Guatemala has had similar history. So these people are now, and especially after those hurricanes last year, uh, they got nothing. So they're coming up here and we're not letting them in. And that's a humanitarian crisis. And we better get good on, on dealing with refugees because climate is going to generate, and this is, these are the studies that UN cites, hundreds of millions by the middle of the century. We're in the middle of the biggest refugee crisis right now. The other side of that is if we are going to, and you can see this in our Equal Socialist Green New Deal, our budget, it creates 38 million jobs. By the biggest kind of unemployment currently, and you can go to the National Jobs for All Network, their website, or National Jobs for All Coalition, if you Google that, you'll get the same site. And you'll see that if you count officially unemployed, part-timers who want full-time work, and discouraged workers who would work but weren't counted as looking because they knew they couldn't find a job, uh, there's 22.4 million people unemployed in March compared to, I think, it's 9.7 million in the official count. That's a lot, but it's not 30 million people. So, you know, we need more people here to make this rapid transition to 100% clean energy and zero emissions in a decade, which is what we really need to, to take a big bite out of climate change and set an example for the world. So immigrants should be seen as, you know, a blessing, an asset. Uh, most of us descend from people who, whose people immigrated here from other parts of the world. Um, why shut the door behind us? So, yeah, Trump's, uh, and the idea that they're going to finish the wall, you know, I, I mean, we call for open borders. You know, you, you check in at a, Border crossing, they check your papers. If you're not, not a warrant out for your arrest, you know, come on in, shop, vacation, look for a job, work, commute, or take up residence. Uh, and it would work both ways. Most people coming from these countries south of the border, a lot of those people just want to make some money here to send back to their people back home. Uh, and they would stay in those countries if they could. But as I described, they're just very bad situations. High poverty, a lot of violence, and they got to get away. So, um, yeah, the, that's another issue where Biden may be on a bit of a honeymoon now. He's spending the money on the relief package. He's going to get an infrastructure plan, uh, and that's going to get the economy going. And compared to what we've had, not just Trump, but the, you know, neoliberal austerity we've got from Clinton and Obama, going back to Carter. This has gone on for 50 years. Uh, spending a little money is a change uh, on, you know, it's not enough. But a lot of people are saying, wow, this is so different. I think Biden's going to have a bit of a honeymoon. But we can't give it to him because what he's doing at the border is, you know, inexcusable. And what he's doing in foreign policy is inexcusable. And what he's failing to do about climate 
is inexcusable. And I could go on. The police, you know, we just got to keep, you know, explaining to people that, that our expectations need to be a lot higher. <clears throat> Luke is a Giants fan. So am I. I. I came up in San Francisco Bay Area and San Francisco Giants. Now, maybe you're a New York Giants fan. But anyway, what do you mean about we need to get a good at dealing with refugees? What is the specific policy that you, Green Party USA, will propose to solve issues around immigration in the U.S.? I mean, we got to get good at helping refugees find uh, a safe place to live, uh, employment, the social services they need, education, health care, because there are going to be a lot of people moving because of climate change. That's what I mean by getting good at dealing with refugees. Um, we got we to gotta find a way to make sure these people are taken care of. I'm waiting for the next question, but he asked, what is the specific policy? The general policy would be open borders. And then everybody coming into the country, uh, you know, the children separated need to be uh, put back with their families. Uh, everybody who comes into the country uh, should have access to social services. I mean, that's a big thing. Right now, we don't let undocumented people uh, have access to social services, which is a uh, it's a political problem. Uh, it's a public health problem. Um, so um, we need to make sure that, well, first of all, everybody should have documents. You know, to say that people are quote unquote illegal, no human being should be quote unquote illegal. Um, so everybody should have documents that they can use to access uh, public accommodations, social services, Employment, uh, those are some of the changes that need to be made right away. Luker Denouncer asks, what are your thoughts on Japan dumping all that radioactive water into the Pacific? Yeah, the uh, Fukushima water tanks are running out of storage. Um, that's one thing. But the other thing is they're already dumping water, not deliberately, but uh, the water in the aquifer aquifer is leaking into these uh, reactors that melted down, uh, absorbing radioactivity, and then migrating out of the reactor back into the aquifer and the water table and into the ocean. So it's already leaking radioactive water into the Pacific. Now Japan is saying uh, we're going to have to release the water in the tanks because we're running out of storage that's radioactive, that they pumped out of these uh, reactor vessels. Um, but they say they'll do it slowly, which is the old corporate answer to pollution, which is they say the solution to pollution is dilution, but not really. That radioactivity needs to be sequestered from the environment. It's one of the big problems with nuclear power. Aside from this disaster in Fukushima, every day these nukes are producing radioactive waste that has to be stored for hundreds of thousands of years. And we don't have a way of geologically uh, making that waste disappear into, you know, Earth's core. Uh, probably the best answer right now is to keep it at the nuclear power plant sites as they're decommissioned and monitor it. But that is the longest damn commitment humans have ever made. You know, we're talking 600,000 years in a lot of a lot of cases. And, uh, you know, it was only 10 or 12,000 years that we started agriculture years ago. So this is this is just insane. And Fukushima is a manifestation of that insanity. So, yeah, it's leaking radioactivity, but uh, that water should not be dumped even slowly into the Pacific. 
Anna Schiefelmeyer, what do you say to a ranked choice voting group in a state that does not have equal ballot access? Uh, well, ranked choice voting and ballot access should both be promoted. Um, I, I think maybe you're thinking, well, why should the Greens care if they don't have access to the ballot? Uh, well, we should care because when we do get it, we don't want that, you know, lesser evil spoiler dilemma to affect us in uh, executive races and in legislative races. Uh, if ranked choice voting uses uh, multi-member districts, we get proportional representation. And then the Green Party gets their fair share of representation proportional to their support in the population. If we limit ranked choice voting to single member districts, uh, we're basically keeping the winner take all system. Uh, whether it's plurality voting that we have now or ranked choice voting, if you keep single member districts, most of those seats are going to be won by a Democratic or Republican majority in that district. <coughs> the Greens and other third parties may get more votes in the first round, but in the end, it's more likely the major parties are going to stay in power. We see this in the uh, Australian House of Representative elections in 2019. They have 151 seats. They're all single-member district. They used ranked choice voting instead of runoff voting. The Greens got 10.4% of the first-round votes nationwide. And they got a fraction of a percent of the seats. They got one of the 151 seats. That's in the House. In the Australian Senate, they elect uh, by multi-seat ranked choice voting. And the Greens there actually have 12%, a little more than the 10% plus they won. <clears throat> so that's why it's really important that as we fight for ranked choice voting, we insist on multi-seat districts uh, using ranked choice voting in the legislatures. And of course, the executive offices are single seats. So that's the case where you have instant runoff voting. Um, and then ballot access. I mean, there's a lot of talk right now about HR1, S1, before the People Act, before the Congress. And, you know, it does have good things in it. Around voting rights, which the Republicans are trying to kill all over the country. Uh, Barring partisan gerrymandering, which the Republicans are trying to use to uh, magnify and exaggerate their power over what the actual support they have in terms of representing uh, themselves in state legislatures and Congress. So those are good things. Uh, you know, we, we have a criticism of the uh, matching funds public campaign financing system because it raises fivefold the amount of money parties or candidates have to raise from 5,000 in 20 states to 25,000 in 20 states in small contributions, which will basically put it beyond the reach of the Green Party. So we criticize that. But the other thing to say about this For the People Act, and there's the John Lewis Voting Act coming up, DC statehood. There are a lot of good democracy reforms, but there's not a fair ballot access bill a federal standard for federal elections. Uh, John Conyers had a bill in the late 80s through the late 90s that uh, Ralph Nader used to cite when he was running. And uh, trying to remember the percentages, but it's like if you got 1% of the vote in any statewide office, uh, you had ballot access for the next cycle. And I think the petitioning requirement was one-tenth of 1% 1 of the people who voted in the last statewide election. Uh, <clears throat> standards that were much lower than uh, most states have, but still pretty high on world scale. You want to run for uh, the House of Commons in the United Kingdom? It takes 10 signatures. You want to run in India or New Zealand for their national legislatures? Two signatures. It's 50 in Australia. It's 100 in Canada. And the rural writings up there, it's 50. Here it's thousands or tens of thousands. So ballot access is a huge issue that is getting no attention 
in all this national talk right now about fair elections and election reform. So that's a long answer to your question, but I, the basic answer is we got to push for ranked choice voting and fair ballot access. And my campaign manager behind the curtain has not put up any more questions. So I think she's saying we should wrap it up for tonight. Um, and without Angela here, I haven't really had time to collect my final thoughts. But I think I'll go back to the uh, Papua New Green, Papua New Guinea Greens Party. You know, please look at that appeal and see if you can give them a few dollars. Uh, of course, we need money here too, but uh, we need to be in solidarity around the world because the climate crisis, the ecological crisis, the crisis of war and imperialism is an international problem. And we need to be in solidarity across borders. So I, I'd urge you to look at that and uh, provide some money there. And uh, I, I think we should celebrate some recent victories. Uh, Peter Schwartzman in Galeville, Illinois, the new mayor, he had been a city councilor there. Uh, he's a co-author of a book called Earth is Not to Sail with his father, David Schwartzman. Peter, besides being a politician, is a, a professor at a college there in Galeville. Uh, we have the new Eco-Socialist Party in Greenland winning last week. Uh, so, you know, I think you, you, the European elections this year are going to have Greens advance. So, you know, there's a lot going on, and U.S. is particularly difficult. We got about the most unfair election system in the so-called democratic world, and uh, some seems tough at times, but we have a lot of allies around the world, and we need to remember that. Show them solidarity. They'll show us solidarity, and we are we are winning at the local level anyway, and that's how we're going to build a base and take on the national power structure. So I'll leave, I'll, I'll leave off on that optimistic note, and thanks for showing up, and we'll see you next week.